Welcome to the Postpartum Revolution Podcast. I'm your host, Annie Hopkins, and I'm a pelvic health physical therapist, yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic postpartum doula in training, and I live and work in the seacoast of New Hampshire. Join me as we talk about all things postpartum, from how your pelvic floor heals after birth to how you can support your body as it changes and recovers during postpartum. We will also dig into the inequalities that exist in the birth and postpartum world and how we can fight for equality for birthing people of color, support our LGBTQ families, and gain paid parental leave for everyone. Are you ready for the postpartum revolution? Let's go. Hey, revolutionaries. Real quick, do you want to do more than just talk about revolutionary change? Me too. So I've started an account over at Kofi.com to collect money for change-making organizations that are working to improve postpartum care in America. Each month, I'm supporting a different organization. So head on over to Kofi.com slash the postpartum revolution and check it out. That is ko-fi.com slash the postpartum revolution. And you can give any amount that you'd like. And the great thing about Kofi is that there are no fees, so 100% of your donation goes to the organization. So please help fund the revolution and be a part of the change by going to Kofi.com slash the postpartum revolution and making a donation. Thank you so much for your generosity. And now let's dive into the episode. Hello and welcome to the Postpartum Revolution podcast. Today, I am so excited to chat with my friend Katie Stout. Katie and I went to PT school together um, just a handful of years ago, not that many. We were trying to trying to remember how far back it was, and it just doesn't seem real. Um, but since we graduated college, Katie has given birth to two beautiful boys, and you know how we stay connected on the social media and all that stuff. Her, I just was so fascinated by her pregnancy and postpartum journeys, and you know, I reached out to her to say, Hey, do you want to come on the pod and share your story? And she said, yes. So Katie, welcome. Thank you so much for coming. Bye. No problem. Hi everybody. Um, so yeah, as Annie said, I am a old PT classmate, um, and mom of two. My, uh, my mother, her journey started in 2012, or I guess it was late 2011. Um, when we found out I was pregnant with, uh, my first and, um, normal pregnancy, didn't really know what I was signing up for, thought I was just gonna have a kid, come home, people do it all the time, no big deal, Um, and was really shocked by how everything went down, Um, ended up going into preterm labor when I was at about 32, 33 weeks, Um, didn't really, the the conversation with the doctor went like this, I think my water broke. No, your water couldn't have broken. Your first time mom, it was probably just bladder leakage, just, you know, rest. And this was at five o'clock in the morning. And had I not gone with my mom gut, which I didn't know existed until this journey, um, I would have gotten in the car on the DC beltway and driven an hour to work thinking bladder leakage, it happens. Um, Said to my husband, I really don't think this is right. The way the doctor left the phone call was, if you think something's not right, you can go into triage or just call the clinic in a couple hours if you're still uncomfortable. So I said to my husband, I really think we need to go into triage. Something is not right. Cause that it was my water broke. It was a lot of fluid <laughs> and not normal. Not water. I'm sorry for the information folks, but um, no TMI on this podcast. We uh, headed into triage. And again, you know, first time mom, I just kept telling people I thought my water broke. And the first nurse said to me, you know, she said, all right, we'll come with me to the bathroom. We go to the bathroom. And she said, well, your, your clothes are dry. Right. My clothes are dry because I changed my clothes. (laughs) Well, now I can't test to see if it was amniotic fluid, she says, and puts me in the waiting room. And at that point I started to get a little uncomfortable. Um, and I said to my husband, I said, something really is not right. And so he went up and, you know, talked to the nurse and so they found a triage bed for me, put me on the triage bed. And they said at that point they had called my, the practice that I was being followed by, but nobody would be there for a little bit. And there was a medical resident who was going to come just check me. So I'm in 
a triage bed. It's like a stretcher with a sheet on it. And they put me in a gown. They haven't been able to check if this was a true uh, amniotic fluid leak or whatever. And this adorable uh, medical resident comes in with a lab coat and suit and then proceeds to do a pelvic exam. And the nurse said, well, she does think her water broke. And he's like, but remember, her water didn't break. Everybody just kept pushing it off until the rest of my water broke all over this adorable little resident, suit and all. And he looked at the nurse and he goes, well, I think her water broke. I need to go change and we need to get her into labor and delivery. So at that point, I was kind of thrust into labor and delivery. Um, and also knowing that I was going to preterm labor, discussions about NICU and what that meant. Um, and just it's for kind of full disclosure, the hospital I gave birth at is the hospital I work at. And during the hospital tour, we had gone to the NICU and I never really registered the NICU because the NICU isn't something that you plan for. So in the 12 hours from arriving to the hospital to when my son was born, I learned a lot. Um, I went into the, the birthing process wanting a natural birth, not wanting medications. We had a wonderful seasoned nurse who said to me, she said, uh, just sign this paperwork for the anesthesia. I, I was very adamant. I said, I do not want anesthesia. She said, I understand. But if it gets really uncomfortable, you're not going to have the, the brain power for me to put a piece of paper in front of you. Sign it. If you don't need it, we'll shred it. And I really fought her for a little bit until my husband said, just sign the piece of paper. She said, if, it's not a requirement that you have anesthesia, but if you need it, turns out the reason she really wanted me to, to sign it was because if, because I was in preterm labor, if they had to do something emergently, they wanted everything kind of lined up and ready to go. But it was never a discussion that we had during any of the birthing classes. It was either natural birth or medicated birth. There was never this kind of titrated sequence of events where you could go either way. It was like, you know, really felt pressured to pick what you wanted. And I really wanted that natural birth experience. And I will tell you about four hours in, I loved that nurse more than anything in the world because, um, because my labor was so quick, um, the, the labor process was very, very painful. So about four hours in, I desperately wanted the epidural um, and I probably hugged her, I'm pretty sure, in the process. So um, at the end of that 12 hours, my son was born. He was a huge 33-weeker. He was about six and a half, seven pounds. And then they started questioning whether or not I had my due date right. So I remember them saying, if you're under 34 weeks, automatic, don't pass go straight to the NICU. And so I was okay with that. You know, everybody said you're so far along, it probably will just be precautionary, X, Y, and Z. And then they're questioning in the, the labor room. He was born. He was big. His APGAR was great at birth. And um, then they were questioning whether or not he was truly a preemie. And I just remember laying there going, oh, my gosh. I, I couldn't even process that level of the, the discussion. And I just remember another nurse. The nurses in my journey have really kind of saved my kids time and time again. Um, the nurses said, no, hospital protocol is under 34 weeks straight to the NICU, 24 hours hospital protocol. And so the doctors all agreed. He went off to the NICU, my husband with him. And then I was there with the, the labor and delivery nurse to finish, you know, having the epidural wear off, get comfortable. And that was also something that I wasn't really prepared for. You know, you see pictures of people giving birth and hanging with the husband and the baby. So I wasn't prepared for my husband and my baby not to be there and then me to be in this very vulnerable state and it just be a nurse who was a lovely nurse. And I was so lucky to have her. I was also super lucky to have gone into labor when I did because I got in right at the start of shift and he was delivered by four o'clock. So she was able to stay with me for that whole 12 hours, like seven to seven. I didn't have to do nursing shift change. I didn't have to do transition of care. It was pretty serendipitous. And, um, you know, she really helped me through, you know, the first time getting up after the epidural, trying to go to the bathroom for the first time, and just all of the components that come with after delivery where your husband's not there to help. So that was something really, really 
never planned for. And my son was in the NICU for about a week and a half. He came home. So his challenges were uh, premature lungs and premature liver. So he, in the, the first 12 hours of being in the NICU, he actually did have a rapid decline in his respiratory status. And they had to give him a couple of medications to keep his airway open. And it was about 12 hours of, we don't know if we're going to need to put a breathing tube in or not. He didn't need a breathing tube. He just needed airway pressure to keep his airways open. Um, but that was another thing not prepared for just, you know, I kept hearing 24 hours precautionary and then we're in this and it was not a very long NICU stay in terms of the spectrum of NICU stays, but it was something again, never planned for. And you don't really ever plan for those scenarios. So he was there. And while he was there, I was also recovering from having just given birth. And part of that process was trying to figure out how I was going to, you know, another part of my journey was that I really wanted to breastfeed. And because of his breathing issues at birth, he was not able to breastfeed right away. He did eventually get it, but it was still very challenging for him. It was, it was about six months of, of really being challenging. And during those six months, I also went back to work. So we started on a, a pumping journey instead. So went into it thinking I was going to breastfeed and then ended up becoming what we call an exclusive pumper. And I'll tell you a little bit about that. And I'll sum it up at the end with the second, second delivery story. So after he was in the NICU for a week and a half, he came home and we thought he was doing great. Nobody ever said, we think he'll have to go back. They said, follow up with your pediatrician the next day. So saw my pediatrician. He did some lab work and he called about an hour later and said, you need to take him back to the hospital because his liver enzyme levels are too high. His bilirubin is too high. And at that point, I was a postpartum hormonal mess. And nobody ever said going back was something we were going to have to do. And I'll say the nurses again were wonderful, but I got back to the NICU. And at that point, because he had left, he had to be put in a contact precaution room. So he was in this room with gowns and gloves. So a whole different level of of precautions so that we didn't um, potentially, you know, infect other babies that were in the NICU. And I got a little sassy with the nurse and I said, it's just jaundice. Babies have jaundice all the time. I don't understand why we're back here. There are babies that really need to be in the NICU. And she looked at me and she said, Mrs. Stout, I don't remember the numbers, but if his belly room were one level higher, it would cross the blood brain barrier, blood brain barrier and he could suffer permanent brain damage. And I thought, oh, so as a physical therapist who works in acute care brain injury, she caught my attention and I stopped being sassy. And I said, all right, sit down, shut up. And they know what they're doing. <laughs> so we were there for another week while they did some really intense fluid, um, working on his feeding. That's in order to help babies with jaundice, really getting them to eat and poop is a way to help it. So we were still not great on the feeding piece of that. And so we got lactation support and pumping support and um, then headed home and never really thought much of it after that and realized a couple things, but never really put all the pieces together, realized that I didn't have a great plan going into this whole delivery thing, knowing what I knew. And also knowing that I wasn't really great at asking for help. As a physical therapist, I'm usually the one that's helping. And I'm usually the one telling people what they should do and how to process getting help, but being thrust into a really unique, uncharted territory, I didn't really know how to ask for help didn't really think about it, didn't really process it. Um, my seven-year-old's doing great. Like I said, he went to daycare and then he's just this year going into second grade and we exclusively pumped. We tried to nurse and I was able to breastfeed him for 15 months when he decided that he really didn't want breast milk anymore and he was done with it. So cool. Yeah, it worked out. Um, so fast forward to my second pregnancy, we didn't know if we were going to have a second child. We ended up deciding to try for a second child. And 
the start of that journey was very different than my first. And I had developed what was called secondary infertility, which again was something that nobody ever tells you about. Uh, went to my doctor, said, you know, we are trying and not being successful and was just told it's your stress. Just relax, go on vacation, X, Y, and Z. And about six months later, still no success. And that led us down a, a pretty short fertility jaunt in the world of healthcare to realize that there were some hormone imbalances and needed some hormone therapy to regulate in order to be able to get pregnant and was able to get pregnant with my second child who just turned two this March at the start of quarantine. So that was an interesting way to celebrate two years. And I really do say that for my second son, the his big brother truly did save him. So again, I'm a pretty boring patient. I have asthma as my past medical history. I don't take any medications. I take a vitamin and not very exciting to doctors. Um, my second pregnancy was pretty boring until we got to an 18 week checkup where they draw blood levels. And the doctor called and he said, one of your blood levels was just a little elevated. I think the lab had a, an error. I'd like you to go back and get it retested. Didn't think anything of it. Go back, get the blood level drawn. And he said, it's still coming back high, but it's not coming back really high. It's just a little bit elevated. So I'd like you to go get uh, a second level ultrasound. And I said, okay, no big deal. Called my husband. He said, great. We scheduled it for lunchtime on a Friday so that it was a quiet day at work for the both of us. It was at lunchtime. The office was in between both of our offices. And we went for the ultrasound. We thought they were checking for spina bifida. And they checked everything. They saved the spine for the, for the last piece. They checked the spine. And then they kept going back to the heart. And this was supposed to be an hour long ultrasound. Four and a half hours later, we left that office. I'd never thought an ultrasound could be painful, but laying on an ultrasound table with an ultrasound wand on your belly is awful. And we left the office with the spine looks great. We're a little bit worried about his heart. But come back in two weeks, there's a doctor from the children's hospital. I didn't know this. There's something called fetal medicine didn't know fetal medicine existed, didn't know that there is fetal echocardiograms. So this doctor that comes to this uh, high-risk uh, clinic does fetal echocardiograms. So they wanted to just do a second check on the heart when the baby was a little bit bigger. Great, no big deal. At that point, we had heard what we needed to hear. We had gone because my doctor was worried about this blood level that might be an indicator for spina bifida. So we thought, no big deal. We'll just go back and it'll be great. So we went back two weeks later and that's when we entered the world. We had been NICU parents and we had been preemie parents. And then we entered the world of being CART parents, which again, wasn't anything on our radar in our wildest dreams. It doesn't run in our family. We had never really heard about it outside of a couple news stories, celebrities having kids with heart defects, didn't really think anything of it. We go back and the physician from the children's hospital said, well, I have good news and I have bad news. Great. And he said, well, the good news is the heart has four chambers. And I said, it should. <laughs> Great. And he said, the bad news is there's something wrong with the aorta. And we're not quite sure if it's if there's something truly wrong, but we're going to need to watch it. If what it is, if what we're seeing is what it is, the baby will need to have surgery right after being born. And at that point, we didn't know, I, I say he, but at that point, we didn't know if we were having a boy or girl. So at that point, he was a, physicians from the, a physician from the children's hospital, and we got referred to cardiology at the children's hospital where they have a, a fetal cardiac team to manage women who are known to have babies with heart defects. And again, did not know that that was a thing. 
learned a lot about uh, fetal medicine and pediatric heart conditions through this journey. But I always say, had it not been for my first son being born prematurely, I truly don't think my doctor would have batted an eyeball at my first lab being a little bit off. And that's, he and I had a conversation. He said, you've really changed how I look at lab values because had you not gone for that ultrasound to rule out the issue with the spine, we likely would not have been able to see what they saw with the heart. And then it would have been an emergent issue when my son was born. So we're very, very lucky. Um, and I have always said to that physician, he's one of my favorite in the practice. And I said, I don't go to anybody else besides you. And I even now email him with my non OBGYN questions just as a sounding board. So he and I have developed a great relationship through this process. So the remainder of that pregnancy, I was followed by my typical OB. However, I then had to be followed by a high-risk OB as well as uh, the children's heart team. But as it got closer, they said, we really want you to deliver. There's a hospital right next to the children's hospital. They said, we really want you to deliver here so it can be an immediate transfer. And that meant having to change who I delivered with because my practice didn't deliver at that hospital. So that meant having to meet a new OB. And if there's any OBs listening, this was a brilliant relationship that this practice had developed with the team at Children's, where they would get referrals from the team at Children's and do delivery-only consults. And what that means is that they would agree to accept me as a patient. They had me sign paperwork so that I could continue to go to my regular OB, and everything got transferred down to them, so they had rights to my records. And I didn't have to drive a really long distance to go to this OB when they weren't going to do anything different for my day-to-day -day management. They were just going to be de facto delivering me at the hospital that was right next door to the children's hospital. So I thought that was a really, really super plan. Uh, and I've actually been able to give that information to a couple other moms in this area. But I thought that was a really, really smart way to manage patients. So how would you, um, for everyone who's not in your area, but is listening and has that question, like, cause that's a really empowering thing that you just said, like speak up and set, make your team set up in such a way that is proactive and supportive. So you asked, or what happened with you is that your high risk delivery team just kind of followed along with your standard OB routine checks so that they knew all of the ins and outs. And then your standard OB was not going to be, in, not going to deliver. You were going to deliver with this team and you had them talk to each other. Yeah. It was fascinating. It was brilliant. <laughs> so easy yet. Yet not done. It's not always done and it, it's not hard, but it just isn't always thought about when the way healthcare is set up, it's by practice or by hospital it wasn't hard. It was literally a piece of paper that I signed at both practices agreeing that they could share my records. And every time I would go to my regular OB, I would just remind them at checkout, hey, can you send the paperwork over? And he always had the information. And that was really helpful. You can't always plan where you're going to deliver. So it was really helpful for both of the teams to have the information about me and the baby so that if I did need to deliver emergently at a hospital closer to my house, that could be workable. And if I made it where I wanted to deliver next to the children's hospital, that was also workable. And it wasn't having to give a bunch of information during a really stressful time to a team that didn't know me because they already knew me. Sounds like they were working for you. They were. And it, is great. I wouldn't have even known to ask the question. That was the crazy thing. It was at this appointment with the cardiac team. They said, you know, we really want you to deliver next to the children's hospital. And we have this physician who's agreed to take on our high risk patients uh, and do a delivery only consult. Would, is that something you would consider? Absolutely. I didn't, it wasn't a question I would have known to ask though. No. So it, something to think about. It's yeah. those questions that you don't even know you have. Well, that's the tough part. And that's what you've hit on 
several times in the story is like, I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't think about it. I didn't plan for it. You know, I didn't, you know, who thinks their kid's going to end up in a NICU. Um, They didn't tell me there was a middle ground with epidurals and, you know, unmedicated births, like all of this stuff. And, you know, it's just, it's a lack of education. It's a huge education gap and a huge communication gap. And we both know as PTs, education and communication are like foundational principles in delivering good healthcare. And, you know, you eventually found your voice and, you know, we're guided through these questions very, very nicely, but that's not the case for a lot of, a lot of folks, you know, educate and communicate people. It can be that simple. It is that simple. And we were also very lucky that we had a great social worker during both of our deliveries, both at the NICU. And then um, with our, our heart baby, we got a social worker proactively through the cardiac team. And she was another great facilitator and just checking in. Do you have questions? I didn't always have questions. And that was also something she really encouraged. People always say, write the question down. Well, you can't see my house right now, but there are about 10 different pads of paper with with scribbles and laundry lists and to-do lists. And I would write stuff down and then I would be in an appointment and I wouldn't have any of my 10 pieces of paper that I'd written stuff down on. And she said to me, just email me. If you have a question, email me. And I felt that I was burdening her because we all know email can be such a burden. And she said, I'm not always going to respond right away, but I will get back to you. And then that way you don't have to remember. And I thought, again, that was just such a great tactic for her to open up that line of communication because you get an email from a physician or a provider and you think, oh man, I really, I really should only email them with something earth shattering or life threatening, not gee, I don't know how to register for delivery at the hospital across the street from the children's hospital. And after racking my pregnant brain on several website searches and searching through all the papers that people had given me, I couldn't figure it out. And so I emailed her and she, a couple days later, emailed me the link and it was perfect. Yeah. Pregnant and toddler, pregnant with toddler (laughs) at home. Like your brain is definitely fried. (laughs) Totally fried. So... I'll finish out the the exciting birth of my heart warrior. Um, None of my children do anything that's not exciting. So he decided to uh, make an appearance about three weeks early during a spring snowstorm. Mm -hmm. It was March of 2018 and the DC area was hit with a spring snowstorm. Of course, everybody kept saying, you're going to go into labor during the snowstorm. And I kept saying, no, I'm not. No, I'm not everything's good this time. And sure enough, the night the snowstorm started, I started getting really uncomfortable. And I thought, that's totally your mind playing tricks on you because everybody's been telling you this is going to happen. And my, my older son was FaceTiming with my niece. And usually I FaceTime with my niece too, but I was just so uncomfortable. I said to my husband, I'm going to go lay down there in his room. Just make sure it doesn't get too unruly. And about a half hour into that FaceTime, I thought, I really need to call the hospital because I really think I'm in labor. And I called and they said, well, your contractions are still far enough apart. We don't know if it's real labor or not. And I said, I've done this before. I know this time. And I said to my husband, I said, it's starting to get really bad. And my parents needed to come from a half hour away to get my older son. So I said, I think we just need to go. We don't need to get stuck in this house when I'm about to deliver a kid that needs urgent medical care. I'd rather go and sit in the hospital for 12 hours and get sent home than have it be the other way around. So we called my parents. They came to pick up my son. We headed to the hospital. And it being late at night at a city hospital, this was another thing I didn't know. So moms, if you're listening, ask if there's a different entry for labor and delivery during off hours. At this hospital, you have to enter through the emergency room, which we didn't know. And we parked where you would park to go into the main hospital to go up to the lovely labor and delivery floor. Well, emergency medicine's on the other side of the hospital and it was snowing. So we left the car, we walked in the snow 
and we get up there, we finally find the right floor. We get to labor and delivery and they had just done a change of shift and a lot of nurses had called out because of the weather. And apparently it is a thing where you do go into labor when there's a change of, of pressure. And so there were a lot of women waiting in the waiting room of labor and delivery with a nursing shortage. This is the perfect storm, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's a nursing shortage and a bed shortage. And I'm thinking, okay, so at this point, my contractions are getting closer and closer. And, and another woman comes out and she said, stout. So we get to the back triage bed. The doctor comes to check me and she said, I don't think, I don't think you're far enough along. We're going to send you back out to the waiting room. And I looked at the nurse and I said, again, throughout the journey, nurses have saved me. I said to her, I said, I don't think it's that going to be that long. And she said, okay. I said, I do need to go to the bathroom. So of course I go to the bathroom. My water breaks in the bathroom. And I said to the nurse, I said, my water broke. And then at that point, a resident comes in and the resident's like, "Eh, it doesn't look like your water broke. I don't know what it looks like when water breaks. I said, well, I was in the bathroom. It wasn't like this trail of water. And so I looked at the nurse. I said, this is the start. And she said, I gotcha. And then she had a whole bunch of blood drawn and she had it all lined up on the counter. And she said, when the doctor thinks that you're in labor, all the labs are ready to go down. We'll get you into a bed and we'll get you comfortable. And I'm like, oh, thank you, Jesus, that this woman has listened to me. Because that's another piece of this is listening. And I think doctors sometimes get into that. And I think as a physical therapist, too, I've done it before where you think you've seen this case before and you think you know how it's going to go. And probably about 10 minutes later, the resident was coming in to check me to then send me back out to the waiting room. And at that point, I started to dilate. And she got, she said, oh, I guess you were right. We're going to see if we can find you a bed. And I said, oh, thank you. And then the nurse looked at me and she said, "Uh, I'm just a triage nurse. I'm going to, and I said, you cannot leave me. You cannot leave me. And she said, oh, I'm, I'm only triaged. I'll hand you off to labor and delivery. And I looked at her one more time and I just said, you cannot leave me. And she's like, okay. And so they're wheeling me into labor and delivery. And she said, somebody switched with me. I'll stay with you. So I, this nurse was able to stay with me, which was a relief because at that point, the stress of knowing that I was going to deliver this baby that needed surgery started to hit me. Fast forward, beautiful delivery. Once we got the epidural this time, I knew I wanted to sign the paperwork and uh, it was pretty, pretty typical until he was born and then they had to bring in the whole NICU team. And the way it worked was they would stabilize him in that hospital's NICU and then transfer him over. It was a little uh, over the top that in order to transfer him to one from one hospital to the children's hospital, they actually had to put him in an ambulance and drive him across the parking lot. So they had to come sign him out to me. And so he's in the incubator with all of the bells and whistles. And my husband said, it was quite a scene. He said they got to the lobby of the hospital and one of the oxygen tanks had run out of oxygen. So then everything starts beeping. So you have this little bitty baby with everything alarming and everybody was just kind of paralyzed. So he went over to the children's hospital with my son and then I stayed in the hospital. I had to stay for at least 24 hours because they had to monitor my blood pressure and my blood work. So again, I knew that uh, feeding for him was going to be a little difficult. So I just asked for uh, the pump. I knew what to do this time, pumping. And um, the nurse was great at, at helping me get set up. And the nurse was also great. You know, she made the recommendation that I said the first time my son was delivered, I was in the middle of this labor and delivery ward. And all I heard all night was baby crying and my baby wasn't with me. So it was really difficult. I said, is there any way that I'm like not in the middle of this ward? And she said, yeah, I I think the end room, she said, nobody wants the end room because it's right by the elevator. I said, oh, don't worry. I'm, I have no problem sleeping. I will sleep, but I don't want to hear babies crying all night long. And she said, fine. So they got me that room tucked away at the end of the, not the end, the start of the hall where nobody really wanted to be. And that's when 24 hours later, I was able to go over to the children's hospital and be with my son. And 
we were there for about a month. He went into heart failure early on, and so they had to delay his surgery. And all of the pieces of my first son's NICU experience started coming back. But like I said, I never really stopped to think about what I would have done. So it was almost like I was doing this all over again, except I had done it before. So I at least knew what I thought I needed to ask for, but I didn't really. And it wasn't until one of my best friends called me and she said, hey, she's from New York. Hey, uh, I'm having groceries delivered to your house. I don't even know what you need, but I just had a whole bunch of groceries delivered to your house. There's some water bottles, there's some crackers, just basic shelf-stable stuff so that my husband wasn't having to go out for every little thing. And I thought, oh my gosh, when people say, what can I do for you? You never know how to answer. So that's another little piece that I never really thought about until that moment, because people would say, well, what can you, what can I do for you? I don't know. You can't make this any better. Right. I don't know. And it wasn't until she ordered me groceries that I thought, okay, so when my mom would ask, what can you do? I have laundry that needs to get folded. I know there's some laundry that needs to get folded at home. We would have neighbors. I have a group of neighbors that I walk our dogs with. And we have two dogs who that was another having to figure out who is going to watch the dogs in the midst of all of this. But they always go out in our backyard and poop. And I'm the poop picker up every weekend. And the dog walkers would say, well, what can I do? If you could just go check the yard and make sure it's not overflowing with poop, that would be great. And you don't have to if you don't want to, but that's what would be really helpful. And so a couple of times they would come over and pick up poop for me. I know it sounds really not glamorous, but it's all the little pieces of life that you don't really think about because you just do them until you can't do them. Right. And so that's what really helped me the second time was at least I had done it before and I was better at advocating for myself, but it was still an evolution. It was still trying to figure out boundaries with different people in your life who you can ask what level of help from. Um, being okay if people say no, because they're going to be people that can't help you with certain things and that's okay. And not having that be hurtful. And also knowing how to use your team. So knowing how to use social work. I just, the first time my son was in the NICU, they would come, they would check on me and they would ask if I had questions and I didn't know what I didn't know. And this time I knew enough to ask about what was going to happen in terms of our hospital stay, in terms of discharge. One thing that was really helpful was because he was born with a heart defect, he automatically qualified for infants and toddlers, which is early intervention services for, for kids. So they said, you don't have to take it, but if you want it, he qualifies. And I thought, my God, yes, please. So when he first came home, there was a nurse that came to our house and just, it was a very benign visit. It was checking in on him, checking in on me. Was he gaining weight? Did I have any questions about, he had surgery. Did I have questions about his incision, about taking care of it? And then as he grew, he started having issues with feeding and with sleeping. And so she was able to help me through that. And I think, again, as moms, you think, well, people have babies all the time. Eventually everybody's all right. Cause we're all here and some kids just don't sleep well, but she was able to walk me through all the components of our day. And I don't think that exists enough. It doesn't matter that my kid had a, a heart defect. We were, lucky, quote unquote, that he had a heart defect because I got these awesome services. But I feel like that should be something that everybody gets. And Annie, to, to talk to what you're doing, the postpartum revolution, postpartum care, you go for a six week checkup. And that's it. That's it. It's crazy. And I actually said to so my son, he still gets early intervention. He gets speech for feeding. He just graduated from physical therapy. But I actually talked to his physical therapist and I said, do they do like 
postpartum mom care at home because I don't want to drag my kid. I, I can't get to the clinic because here was my day. I would wake up at four. I would pump. He would wake up at five. I would give him a bottle. I would go a couple hours. I would pump again and he would feed again and I would pump again. And I would, and I was really agile at pumping just about anywhere. I've pumped in airports. I've pumped on airplanes. I've pumped in conferences, in meetings, on conference calls. The only place I don't think I've ever really pumped is a train, but I even would pump to and from work. They make a a car charger. So you just plug in your pump and it's like 40 minutes. So I've got plenty of time to pump away. But nobody's checking on the mom, trying to figure it out. I have a couple of really great mom groups and there's one. And I really wish that this group of women like all lived somewhere together because we're all over the country, which is actually really nice because if you're up at three o'clock in the morning, losing your brains over something, there's somebody who's awake. And so you can put something out there and somebody will write back saying, you're not completely crazy you're going to be fine, (laughs) but there isn't that support system inherently built into any of our, our care models. And I just thought about, you know, pelvic health and pumping, there's lactation consultants, but again, you've got to go to the clinic. You've got to drag this baby and go somewhere. Um, And something that I did at one part of my career that I've actually thought if I ever needed to reinvent myself, it would be a telehealth women's health model because again, it was just a way to connect with patients so that they didn't have to leave their environment and it's lacking. No, that's so, that, that was just a big light bulb moment. Like we have a whole, you know, the lactation consultants, we take care of the boobs and the milk, but we don't take care of the pelvic floor. Like the other part that created this child, you know, like, oh man, that yep. is just <laughs> that whole new light on it. And I just shake my head all over again. And yeah, I mean, that's why exactly what you just said. That's why I am doing in-home pelvic visits because I don't expect moms to get to the clinic until their kids in like middle school, honestly, maybe, but then you have all the things, although not during COVID, there's no soccer and ballet and dance and this and trips and all that. Um, Because yeah, you just don't, first of all, no one's asking except for once how's the mom like team mom i probably have said this every damn podcast like we need more support on team mom team baby is stacked and like you said your baby like you were quote unquote lucky to have a baby with heart defects so that you got support at home is that the most pathetic statement ever like i'm so glad my baby had a heart defect because i got all these awesome services and support at home when i needed them Right. America, shame on you. <laughs> right. I will say to our pediatrician, our pediatrician is, he's one of the, he's a dying breed. He's the last of his kind. He was my husband's pediatrician growing up. So this man has been a, my husband's 40. So he's been a pediatrician for 40 years. And again, we can call him anytime, anytime. He has an aunt, it's him and a medical assistant. He does his own shots. You go and you get your your flu shot from him. You go and you get your blood work from him, your throat culture from him. You call him, he answers, and you don't have to pay him. And it just makes so much sense. I would, I've told him, I I said, listen, if you're going to retire anytime soon, I need five years at at minimum warning because I'm not going to be able to find many like you where you can just call. And, and even during COVID I've called and I've said, all right, Hey, listen, I've got this crazy question and he'll talk me off my crazy ledge and we move on mm-hmm. and everything's good. And it's this, it's, it's that continuity. It's the consistency and it's the reliability, yeah. which is really helpful. Yeah. That that's, that is wellness. That is holistic wellness. I think our current medical, Western medical has, you know, kind of devolved into this kind of just disease management state. Either you're diseased or you're fine. And that we do not have a black and white scale like that. It is a huge gray scale in between. And and even if you look at someone's lab work, labs work, lab work, and say like, "Oh, you're fine." Well, what does that mean? Do I have to follow up? Do I have like there? It just doesn't. It can't be black and white. 
diseased or healthy, you know, it can't be like, well, mom's alive, baby's alive, go home, you'll figure it out. You know, like you said, that that pediatrician, that model of care that you guys have is a dying breed. And, you know, I think everything from that era is a dying breed, the, the social community, the mom support, you know, people taking care, women t- taking care of women instead of, you know, judging or leaving them to ourselves or, you know, like, oh, I don't want to bother her. Like, no, like, come on over, send me the groceries. I, I don't care what flavor you send me. Thank you. <laughs> like, we just need this community to rally around moms because if we want a healthy baby, we need a healthy mom, a healthy and balanced mom. Like you can't possibly wrap your mind around pumping, you know, 20 out of 24 hours of your day if you don't have support. And then if you're not pumping, you know, your baby isn't getting fed as best he could. Formula is there, of course. I mean, I'm not, this is not the breastfeeding debate right now, but it's just the example of like, if mom isn't supported, baby is also not supported. So we need this whole thing to shift, turn on its head. I agree. I agree. And that's the, the last piece was the exclusive pumping piece was something that I, I went to a couple family events where people would say, well, do you really have to pump? Yes, I do. Because if I don't, it's just like my baby eating. So first of all, he needs to eat. And this is what he eats. And second of all, if I don't, I'm going to look like Bessie the cow walking out of here with a soaking wet shirt. So yeah, I'm going to go pump. And no, I'm not going to try to force him to nurse because at one of these events, he was 10 months old. And they said, well, okay. So much judgment. What? And I will say, so for people that are listening to both moms and physicians, there is a big debate as to whether or not moms can truly exclusively pump. And I'm here to tell you that just like breastfeeding, nursing directly at the breast, some people are successful and some people aren't. And there are many reasons why. And exclusively pumping is absolutely one way to be successful And I can, for me personally, and it's a very personal piece, it's something that actually in one of my support groups, one of the women exclusive pumper actually did her PhD dissertation on exclusive pumping, which I thought was pretty rad. People are told you're not going to be able to do that. And I can say for me, the things that made the difference was diet, making sure that I was eating enough and also the pump type. There are a billion different pumps on the market, just like shoes. Some shoes are super comfortable to others and they're not comfortable to me. If your pump isn't comfortable, it's probably not going to be successful. And to the physicians listening, just FYI, I exclusively pumped for both of my boys. For both of my boys, I had such an oversupply that I donated a thousand ounces both times. And for my second one, I pumped until he was 18 months old. And it was only because he started taking enough by mouth and we literally ran out of freezer space. And at 18 months, I was pretty much done of watching pump parts. So it can be done. It's not impossible. It's different, but not impossible. So don't discourage patients from it. And for moms that have been discouraged, there are some wonderful support groups out there. And that's how I, it wasn't the lactation consultant, even it was the the other moms that were able to say, have you tried this? Have you tried that? And there's a whole laundry list of things that you can try to, to be successful. So. I love that. Do you have the, like the, are those national organizations or like where can people find that support? Cause it sounds wonderful. One, the one that I found most helpful was actually a exclusively pumping group started by an exclusively pumping mom on Facebook. It's a private group. So nobody can see who's in the group unless you're in the group. And I will say Facebook takes a wrap for having security issues. This group has two wonderful administrators and they really do a great job of 
monitoring what gets put up and making sure that it's, it's the right people in the group. Sometimes the groups get so unwieldy that it's hard to monitor. It's a pretty small group and it truly is women that exclusively pump. So you can search it on Facebook and that's where I found the most success because it's not talked about. It's not out there in the public eye. Even the lactation consultant, she really was focused on, for my second son, really getting him to nurse. And when it didn't, I mean, it was visits of stripping the kid down. So he was naked and weighing him and sitting there and trying to get him to nurse and then reweighing him. And it was just stressful and awful. And at the end, she said, I really, I just think you're going to have to switch to formula. And at that point, he had other medical issues too, where he's got a dairy allergy and a couple other allergies. So switching to formula wasn't really a good option. And so I just started searching on late night pumping sessions and that's how I found them. Yeah. Again, the lactation, the it's either black or white and it's just, you know, it's just not, there's so much gray. It's either like you're breastfeeding like child to breast or chest and, or your formula and there's no in between and you have to get it right immediately or else you're going to have to put on, on formula you know, and, and I talked with, you know, Dr. Steven Ossenberg, he shared that, you know, his wife, after going through this horrendously long medical labor, um, couldn't breastfeed. She was exhausted. But again, it was one of her goals to breastfeed too. And, you know, they did formula for a while because she was recovering. And then they started breastfeeding like several months into their son's life. And it was an old school pediatrician who was like, yeah, you can learn how to do this. Like you can pick up this skill. It doesn't have to be done day two postpartum or nothing. You know, it's just, there's so many nuanced things that, you know, if we don't talk about it, it's not known. If it's not known, then we're stuck in this black and white trying to fit, you know, circles into square pegs and vice versa. And it just, it disempowers the mom and it makes us feel like, crap you know like that's because that's what all this boils down to like this shame or unworthiness or whatever like I can't feed my kid I can't do this it must be me it must be me and I don't know if you had those thoughts but I hear them so often you know treating as a pelvic PT like we just immediately take the hit to our self-esteem to our self-worth and that's just not okay you know so I hope that wasn't the case for you (laughs) because we shouldn't feel that way for the first uh, delivery, I did feel a little defeated. Again, I felt defeated the whole way. I went into preterm labor. That must have been my fault. I couldn't deliver naturally. People deliver naturally all the time. Why couldn't I do it? I was having trouble breastfeeding. I had to pump. And then I also found support from some friends who had reached out to me and said, hey, listen, I know that you've done this have some questions. And then I realized, oh my gosh, there's a lot of people that have these challenges. And I did have a little of that doubt, not as much with my second son, but with him being diagnosed with the heart defect, it was, it must've been my fault. What did I do? And that's when, so I didn't mention it, but my second uh, pregnancy, I was on weekly injections starting at 16 weeks to prevent a second preterm labor. And that was another piece of support that the quote unquote, so lucky to have had a preterm delivery so that you have to get injections every week. I had a nurse come to my house and do those injections. So every week I was getting fetal monitoring, I was getting blood pressure monitoring, and I had 30 minutes where she would come and talk to me. Are you doing okay? How's everything going? And it was in those conversations. So when I, the week I found out about my son's heart defect, she was coming like that day she was coming over and I just was hysterical and she stayed with me for two hours. And I said, I know you're going to be late for your other patients. And she said, it's okay. I've already texted them. They're cool. They're cool. You're fine. And she was telling me about uh, a baby that she had delivered who had had a heart defect and how he was 30 years old and still. So it was really it was good to have that connection and that support. And that's also something that's not given. Nope. 
connection and education still all circles back to that. And why wouldn't you doubt yourself when you've been told twice that, no, that wasn't your water breaking. You're like, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure a gallon just dumped out of me. Um, <laughs> but twice you were told, no, no, that wasn't it. You are mistaken about your own bodily functions. Where do we get off saying that medical world? Come on. <laughs> And I will, I'm, I'm tangential here at the end, but uh, during the first preterm delivery, I have a, a dog and she's always been, so she, we adopted her and then my son was born about, so she was four when, when my first son was born. So she was my first baby and she's never been a really clingy dog, but the whole day before I went into preterm labor, she never left my side and I didn't really think about it until afterwards. And so then I really paid attention to her in my second pregnancy. Cause I was like, what does this dog know that I, after, especially after I found out about the heart, I, anytime she acted funny, one time I actually called my doctor and I said, my dog is acting funny. I'm a little worried. I don't know what I'm worried about. And he said, you're fine. But if you feel like you need to come in, you can come in. And again, it was just that whole just being listened to. It wasn't everybody at every part of the journey, but just being listened to and validated makes a huge difference in terms of one, having the trust of your your patient, but two, having that patient be in a position where they feel empowered to talk to their medical team. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So Katie, that, I mean, those stories, man, I got chills a couple of times. Um, and I know when before we started recording, you mentioned that you have, um, I think there's an organiza organization that you hold near and dear to your heart, but I'm ching, no pun intended, because it's called Mended Little Hearts. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? It is. Uh, Mended Little Hearts is a national organization with local chapters that supports families who have kids with heart defects. And again, it was one of those things that never knew about until I've started on this journey and two things. So heart defects are the number one defect in children. One in a hundred kids will be diagnosed with a heart defect on average every year, about 40,000 kids and babies. And what this organization does is not only raise awareness, but also support families. And that was something when we were in the cardiac ICU with my second son, they would do breakfast. They would when you got admitted to the cardiac ICU, you got a little care bag and it had Advil hand sanitizer, which is, I don't know if they can do that now with the shortage. They had a coloring book and, and coloring pencils as kind of what I call a brainless activity to do while you're sitting around for hours on end. And they really have done a lot, not just for my family, but for a lot of families. And it's one of those organizations, people always question charity organizations, but it's one of those organizations that's founded and run by heart families and one that is very near and dear to my heart. So if anybody listening wants to learn more about how to support patients and their families with heart defects, Mended Little Hearts is, like I said, national with local chapters. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I will link that up in the show notes. For sure. And then my one final question that I ask all my guests, what is, you know, if I handed you a megaphone and said, you know, blast out your message to the postpartum revolution, what would your message be? There'd be a lot of them, but let me try to consolidate. For the physicians and providers, it's listen to your patients. And for the moms and moms-to-be, it's don't be afraid of your voice and use it. Absolutely. Just You're just handing that megaphone off to all the other moms use your voice. Here's a megaphone. The world needs more voices, more education, more communication to bring families into the world more gently. You know, it's like such a rough transition um, and it doesn't have to be. So we're starting that revolution. Um, Katie, I don't know if you wanted to offer any ways that people could get in touch with you because you do have some special um, kind of experiences to share and a lot of experience and a lot of wisdom in these areas. So where can people find you? So I am on Facebook, Katie Ambrose Stout, and also people can feel free to email me if they have questions. It's kca.stout at gmail.com. Cool. 
Thank you so much for offering to be a support to people because again, it's just, I, mean, well, you, I don't need to tell you, you experienced it on your own, how awesome that is. So um, yeah, thank you so much, Katie, for your time and your story and your, your passion for helping others. Hey, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Postpartum Revolution. If this podcast sparks something inside of you and you want to help revolutionize the birth and postpartum world, please visit my Kofi account and consider making a donation. Each month I will donate this money to an organization that is fighting to improve the postpartum experience for everyone. To see which organization I'm supporting this month, visit Kofi.com slash the postpartum revolution. That's ko-fi.com slash the postpartum revolution. As always, you can find the show notes and more information from this episode on my website, fullbloomwellness603.com slash podcast. Thanks again for listening. And remember, a revolution doesn't catch fire without a spark. <laughs>